This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with stars. and higher, filling it with songs. filling it with songs. They sound quite mad, don't they? I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I say God. How do you like that? The fault, dear Buddhist, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Good luck. We care about your world. My guest is Vanessa Machado de Oliveira. She's a professor at the University of British Columbia. She holds a Canada Research Chair in Race, Inequalities, and Global Change, and is a founding member of the Gesturing Towards Decolonial Futures Collective. She currently is directing research projects and learning initiatives in collaboration with Indigenous communities in Canada and Latin America related to global healing and well-being in these times of unprecedented challenges. And she's the author of a very important new book, Hospicing Modernity, Facing Humanity's Wrongs and the Implications for Social Activism. Vanessa, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Thank you for the invitation, Tonya. So I really appreciate this book, and I'm really excited to talk with you about this subject that is not being discussed at all in this culture. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you for reading the book. Writing the book was an interesting process because bringing these issues to the public sphere is both exciting, but also it carries with it a level of risk as well. And I'm really curious to see how you read it and what you have to say about it too. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. (laughs) We'll find out, won't we? Yes. So, (laughs) So you have an interesting family background, which gives you a unique perspective of the world and what you refer to as modernity while living in the midst of it? Yes, I come from a family that is mixed heritage. So from my father's side, the ancestry is German. I was born and raised in Brazil. From my mom's side, the ancestry is indigenous, Guarani, the Guarani community in Brazil. And what's interesting about my background is that my dad in the 60s and 70s, his brothers were involved in agrarian expansion in Brazil. And that meant that they were involved in genocide, basically, of indigenous peoples because the agrarian expansion happened at the expense 
of indigenous people in Brazil. So he would hear stories that his brothers would tell him about that. And he decided to take a stand to, to try to, uh, to say that he was not for it in the family. And uh, he decided to marry an indigenous person. And that was both a progressive stance in, in relationship to social change, but also he was coming with a very strong background from a German family of German cultural supremacy. So he really believed that he would be helping the person that he would marry to be enfranchised and to have better genes so that these indigenous people who would come out of this marriage wouldn't be oppressed anymore. So I was born out of this attempt to change the world that was both progressive and racist at the same time. And I think this paradox of trying to change the world in this way is what led me to write the book, but also to work in education. Mm -hmm. And you wrote, this book is about how we inhabit the entity of modernity and how this entity inhabits all of us and maps the ways to reactivate exiled capacities so that we can face the extremely challenging tasks mm -hmm. of moving away from modern colonial desires for human exceptionalism, unrestricted autonomy, and infinite entitlement, and start moving towards accountable autonomy and unconditional responsibility before will. So that's a lot to unpack, but mm -hmm. <laughs> I would love for you to do that and begin by explaining what you mean by the term modernity. Right. There is a short explanation of what modernity is, which is a story, a very powerful story. The story that is not just an object, a story that is a living story. It's an entity in itself, and it's omnipresent. It's a single story of progress, development, civilization, and human leadership and evolution that is all around us, right? Another way of, of explaining what modernity is, is to see it as the house. So if we use the analogy of the house of modernity or the house that modernity built, in the book I talk about a house that exceeds the limits of the planet. So this house is built on a foundation of separation between humans and nature, which we in the book called separability, that has many different consequences, uh, this, this foundation, because if we see our human life as exceptional and different from the other forms of life and separated from the other forms of life, and we see ourselves as separate from nature, what that creates in terms of implications for our sense of self, too, is that the natural value of life, the intrinsic value of life, is actually removed from the equation in the sense that we need to produce value within the house to be considered worthy of being alive. And that happens like in the ways we judge ourselves, in the ways we judge others and other forms of life, too, in terms of the utility to what happens within that house. So that house that has the foundation of separability, there are two carrying walls. One of them is the modern nation state, which we like to believe that the nation state is there to protect people. But the history of the nation state was created to protect property of specific people who could own property, right? And as legal scholars in critical legal studies indicate when we have the dispensation of human rights, civil rights, labor rights, for example, this kinds of things only happen 
when there's interest convergence between dispensing these rights and protecting the rights of capital too. So that that that's that carrying wall of the nation state. Then there's another carrying wall of Western humanism, which then focuses on this way of relating to knowledge where you want certainty, you want control, you want knowledge to provide that and to go in the pre-established direction of progress. So the only valid knowledge is the knowledge that is intelligible or thinkable within certain parameters. And then everything that's outside of those parameters, all the other knowledges and knowledges that are uncertain, for example, they are valued less or they are perceived as not valuable at all, or even they are not registered as existing. They don't exist. So this carry wall really limits the ways we can think about things and the ways we can hope, the ways we can imagine, and sets a very limited and restricted direction about knowledge production. And the roof of the house, the current roof, is the roof of shareholder financial capitalism that we say in the book that it's a structurally problematic or damaged roof because unlike other forms of economic organization, this one is focused on speculation and gambling (laughs) with the planet, with life, and also anonymity. So we are all invested in things like having credit cards, having pension plans. Not all of us, of course, because there are people outside of the house or in the basement of the house that don't have access to these things. But these things are all implicated in a system that is inherently violent, destructive, and unsustainable. So in terms of understanding how this house has affected and conditioned the people who live within it, That's where we start to see how the ways of being that are sanctioned or authorized within the house, they elevate certain goals. And these goals of like human exceptionalism, which also then becomes not just human exceptionalism, but the exceptionalism of groups of people and hierarchies are created between cultures, between ethnicities, between different groups to see who's the most exceptional contributor (laughs) to the house and, and the competition that happens in that sense is one of the problems, but the house is also built to secure human autonomy, but not a kind of autonomy that is accountable and responsible to other forms of life or to the planet or to to future generations. For example, it's a form of unrestricted autonomy that is very consumptive. It's the autonomy to consume as much as you can or whatever you can and to do whatever you want to do, which is a form of irresponsible autonomy. And also that then leads us to the unlimited entitlements. So our politics too is geared towards the expansion of entitlements rather than the expansion of responsibilities, for example. So I've been working with indigenous communities in Brazil and Peru and here in Canada as well to try to trace what we could learn from cultures that have not lost the sense of responsibility to the land, the sense of responsibility to the future, to see what could be done to interrupt our addictions to consumption and to this search for freedom that is so important, actually, but that also can carry with it in the context where, for example, hyper-individualism and narcissism are key, that that search for freedom can also become something that makes us 
irresponsible. So how do we recalibrate that search so that there's more sobriety, more uh, a pathway towards maturity, and much more discernment and this unlimited sense of responsibility that we see in other places where the connection with the land has not been severed, right? So that foundation of separability has not taken hold. So I think part of the book is an invitation to think about what is possible, what is viable, but unimaginable within the current culture that we have so that we can understand how we are missing out on things, how certain capacities that we we actually have have been numbed or deactivated. And part of the invitation is to reactivate these exiled capacities, the capacities that were exiled from the house, so that we can face the unsustainability of the house itself and the crisis, the ecological, mental health, health, um, all kinds of different crises within the house, including how the planet itself is responding to the house exceeding its limits, which then would be the climate emergency. Yeah, and you mentioned the term freedom within the context of modernity, and yet there's a paradox in there, the irony that we need to free ourselves from the spell of modernity, which severely restricts our ability to imagine anything outside of the realm of modernity. Yes, yes. The spell of modernity, it sells a notion of freedom that is in its current manifestation super hyper-individualistic. And I would say because of also technology and social media, it has acquired a tone of narcissism too. So there are different types of freedom and the one that is being sold to us right now is one based on consumption, not just consumption of stuff. When we think about consumption, we think about generally buying stuff, but we're consuming knowledge. We're consuming experiences, we're consuming relationships as well. And in that sense, I'm also interested in how neurobiologically, neurochemically in the body, this addiction to consumption operates to restrict also our capacity to feel well-being and to heal, to heal both our thinking, our sentience, our emotions, our relationships, our economies, and our relationship to the wider ecology. In the book, we call it the metabolism of the planet, right, that we are part of. So freedom can be taken in different directions, but in the direction that we are conditioned and rewarded for taking within modernity, it actually leads to accelerating our own extinction. It's like humanity shooting its own foot. But I don't want to lose the idea of freedom being something that is at the core of the human quest but there are ways of framing that freedom that are responsible or that are accountable to the harm that we can also inflict in the search for that freedom. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, that point that you made about the neurochemistry of modernity and how we as a culture have become addicted to all of the trappings of modernity. Yes. In the book, we talk about it speculatively because I'm not a neuroscientist and we use different languages to talk about these things. And and the, the language of neuroscience can help us understand that it's not just a problem of 
thinking. It's a problem of a habit of being. So in the book, we, together with a group of artists, actually, the idea was if modernity was a drug pusher, <laughs> what kinds of drugs would it be getting us hooked to, right? So what, what would it be selling? And we mapped dopamine, for example, as a way of feeling a sense of achievement. So we feel well when we have achieved something. And if we think about Facebook or Instagram, it's the likes and the shares that will give us a sense of importance, right? And dopamine is an important neurochemical in the body. I'm not saying that this is a pathology. The pathology lies in the sourcing of it and in the ways that we associate dopamine with a specific way of feeling well that then becomes the only way of feeling well in a certain circumstances. But there are also others. There's oxytocin, which is generally referred to as the cuddle chemical, which is, again, fine in its proper context. But if all our relationships are based on this cuddle chemical, which is generally what mothers feel in relation to their children, we will have very projective relationships that might be even self-infantilizing, right? So we will be in a transaction whereby you want the other person to validate you as you see yourself. Otherwise, you will find somebody else. Like, and we forget that we could have a relationship where both people change and grow and take up more responsibility in this growth, right, for each other and for the world. But then if it is based on oxytocin, that our association of feeling well in a relationship is based on feeling safe and feeling coddled, then we are also limiting the possibilities of relationships that take us to a space of growth and into a different pathway of life. We also mapped endorphins and how numbing to the pain, not only the pain of the body, but the pain of the world. Like if we are part of a bigger metabolism that is sick and that is hurting, we feel the pain. We feel that we're feeling the pain of the floods here in BC, of all the animals that are either drowning in the floods or have died. I believe we have the sensitivity and the sensibility to feel that, but we don't have the practices anymore to be able to hold that pain. So for many people, for probably most people, the only option then is to numb to the pain and get on with your life because it is too much, right? We, we don't have the collective practices to hold collective grief anymore within the house of modernity. And there's also adrenaline, another neurochemical which is important, I think, to mention because that's the one that brings us to transgression. So it's related with overcoming fear, with the sensation also of being alive. So when the numbing is too much, we seek adrenaline to feel alive again. And that can be weaponized and instrumentalized in many different ways within the house of modernity. Especially now we see that in, through social media, how people then can use adrenaline to create polarizations that are extremely difficult to interrupt. So for example, if you're thinking about people who have entrenched ideas about something, it's not necessarily about the idea, but about the chemical that they get out of it, right? So if you see that your entrenched ideas give you something chemical in your body that makes you feel alive, that makes you feel also like associating with dopamine, that makes you feel important, that makes you feel powerful, that empowers your ego, interrupting it is not going to be about just trying to convince you of another idea, unless this idea is, is more powerful in terms of bringing the same chemicals, right? It becomes a closed circuit.
uh, neurobiological loop. That's why we use addiction as a metaphor. And there are problems of using addiction as a metaphor as well. But in this case, I think it's useful to show that similar to addictions, this is as difficult to interrupt, right? And it's not just a matter of information. People do know that this is bad, but with an addiction, we can't stop it. Sometimes there is also the idea that we can only stop it once there is the rock bottom context, right? And maybe for different people, this rock bottom within modernity happens in different ways, but maybe collectively we're now reaching the point where more people are reaching that point together, where this cocktail, this neurobiological cocktail doesn't work anymore to make us feel well. And we are unwell then most of the time. And for many people, instead of looking for other capacity, exile capacities and other neurochemical states to feel better, they end up drowning in that same cocktail. And it doesn't work, but you still are attached to it and you seek more of it. And, and that's where we get a lot of the aggression and the violence too. In the scapegoating, mm. right? And projection of the problem, and it becomes a transference of the problem to other people. Mm -hmm. And another applicable metaphor would be the way modernity has been preventing us from growing up as a species mm -hmm. and how it's kept us in a childlike state where we basically just throw a temper tantrum every time our unrealistic expectations and demands aren't met. Yes, <laughs> yes. In the book, we talk a lot about this need to compost the proverbial and non-proverbial shit, right? So we have a lot of saturated things that because of this process of self-infantilization, we have been either protected from or told not to look at, including, for example, our complicity in harm. The fact that our comforts, our securities, our enjoyments are sourced from extremely harmful processes, thinking even about the technology that enables us to have this conversation. The whole setup for this technology requires minerals that are mined in places where the communities bear the costs, not just in one generation, like across generations, where the land too bears the cost of our possibilities for even communicating, right, and, and eating and using transport. So our existence within the house is sourced through expropriation, exploitation, destitution, dispossession, genocide. But we can't sit with this knowledge either because we are told that we actually need to have hope that things are going to get better. And then we skip the shit. <laughs> like we just want to skip that part and just imagine a better future and believe that that future is going to materialize out of our planning to get there. But the problem is that there's a present where relationships have been severed and that where damage is ongoing and this needs to be addressed. The idea is not necessarily we need to stop this right now. We do, but basically, but we can't. So at least facing it and, and being able to sit with it, right, and start to compost these different layers of shit so that it turns into new soil. But in order to do that, and I think that's the key invitation of the book, is that we need to develop our capacity and disposition to hold space for what's difficult, what's painful, what is irritating without feeling immobilized, without feeling overwhelmed, and without wanting to be rescued from discomfort or, or wanting to be coddled. 
maybe that's the first baby step to just acknowledge that we can't just turn our back anymore to this. We will have to face it. And individually, it is an extremely difficult process if you don't have a practice, right? So we'll have to find a way to do it collectively. And we'll have to remember some ways that have been forgotten, but we have to be reminded by some communities about what these ways are as well. But we have to also find new ways because what we're facing is also unprecedented. Right? So the past only will not be able to help us move together in this context. We will have to be creative together, but not if we are trying to escape the problem. Um, in that sense, I think what I believe is that indigenous communities don't have the answers to our predicament, but they do have practices that remind us that it is possible to be otherwise. There are other ways that our being, like neurobiologically, neurophysically, neurochemically, we can find well-being in other states. And these other states might be super helpful in supporting us to learn to compost shit together and create this new soil that is necessary for something new to emerge from the land too. That's the other thing. So we talk a lot about hospicing as a process of accompanying something that is dying and enabling or supporting it to die with integrity and with dignity. And then also assisting with the birth of something new that is yet undefined and hopefully, but not necessarily wiser, because this wisdom will come from us really sitting with the shit and really learning from the mistakes that we have, that humanity has made so far, so that we can make different mistakes in the future, because it's also boring and harmful to be making the same mistake all the time, right? So this birth, in the book, I was very careful not to say that we are going to birth something new, because I do not believe it's us who do it. If we're part of something bigger, as indigenous communities also indicate it's the land that dreams through us. It is the whole thing that is bio-intelligent that will help us and guide us in what and who we will become next after this phase, right? So it's important to decenter the human intellect and imagination from this so that we can declutter all these desires and expectations and fantasies and illusions so that the land can then find its way to tell us what the direction or to show the direction where we need to go and help us through the storms we will have to face together. Yeah, more or less, that's what the book is about. Mm -hmm. And there's a beautiful metaphorical way of talking about this that I love that you present in the book, this notion of wording the world versus worlding the world. And how instead of wording the world that we can actually use language to create what you talk about as living stories that can grow and move in the world. And I would love for you to talk about stories as living entities and about this notion of using them to world the world or as some people talk about re-enchant the world. Yeah, so that's also coming from uh, experiences with Indigenous colleagues and collaborators who work in this area who claim that there is a very different relationship with language and, of course, with language and reality that is possible other than using language to just index reality into language. 
this is really interesting in terms of understanding how then stories are not told to describe something, but they are told to move things. So if you're trying to tell a story to move something, your relationship with the story is very different. The first time I came across this relationship was when I was receiving a song. So I was being taught a song, an indigenous song for a ceremony that had to come basically to be encountered by me. Like that's the language that I have now. But at the time I said I was receiving a song that I needed to learn how to sing. And I was asked to give the song a gift to offer some tobacco to the song. And I then started asking, so why? <laughs> and the answer was because you have to have a relationship with that song so that you know that when the song comes to you and wants to be sung, you will be prepared to be the conduit for it, right? Rather than talking about, okay, here's a song, you have to memorize it. And when you're prompted to sing it, you will have to remember it, right? So the idea there is that when the song wants to be sung, it will come to your mind. You, you can't, you can even try to call it, but it will only come if it is the time for it to speak basically through you, right? So this relationship where the song becomes an entity basically that is in relationship with you is very different from possessing a song, right? Or possessing the lyrics or being able to reproduce it at will. So from there, and that was early in my life that that teaching came, I started to pay more attention to how the indigenous part of my family or indigenous colleagues and collaborators would be using language very differently. So they wouldn't be trying to describe things for accuracy. They would be trying to move people and move the world and other entities in generative ways. And then I found a philosopher, uh, an indigenous philosopher, Carl Mika, who was a Maori philosopher in New Zealand, who wrote a book about it called The Metaphysics of Presence. And it's a book about education. And he, he says the same thing, that in a worlded world, all entities, including the songs and the stories, are living entities, and the humans as well, right? They, they are all living entities that require a different um, a different practice of trust, of respect, uh, of consent, um, of reciprocity, and of accountability with everything. And I think there's so much potential in that, in that relationship, right? If we relate to the world like that, that is not tapped within the house of modernity, that, um, that could really help us to to move in the storm in a very different way, right? And one example of that, because in, in this relationship, metaphors are extremely important. Images, songs, rhythms, movements are, are more important than necessarily the form that things take. And in, in the House of Modernity, form is very important. And form is supposed to be static, like unchanging because it's, it's supposed to become a legacy and a monument of importance. Whereas in movement, there's much more humility, right? Because it's, it's a form shape-shifting all the time and you do not get attached to the form of things, but to the rhythm of it. So it's a very different way of navigating life and navigating problems and navigating obstacles as well, I think. Yeah, in that sense, 
for me, I'm, I'm still learning to do that. I don't know if I can do that 100% of the time because it does require a huge shift of perception and of um, of the sense of spatiality. That's one of the, probably it could be also characterized as one of the exiled capacities, right? To be able to, to access these other senses that help you to have the intuition of where the song wants to go or where, uh, how a story wants to dance, for example. But but I'm learning, <laughs> try and making mistakes and failing, trying to to learn from the failures and mistakes quickly so that I don't become a burden to other people too. Trying to teach me, right? So that's where I'm at. Mm-hmm. And also doing the same thing with the world around us as it naturally unfolds in its own time instead of the way that our culture insists upon trying to control everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. In this imposition of will, right? In, in that sense, I think what it also creates, because of the desire to control, there's also this um, practice within the house of modernity of either idealizing something or pathologizing it or either idolizing or vilifying right or romanticizing or deficit theorizing something so it's like a seesaw that either you're plus one or minus one and again like the the teachings that are coming from the communities is like we need to get to zero we need to stop wasting time with these elevations or degradations and realize that humanity around and within us, um, it's like that there's the good, the bad, the ugly, the broken and the messed up in everything around us and within us as well. And holding space for that is a way to disinvest from that sense of control and, and to say, first, I need to accept my shadows and what's not beautiful about the world and about me. I don't have to endorse it. Like when I say acceptance, it's acceptance without endorsement necessarily. So you just need to to be present to everything that is there without trying to escape into a fantasy or because we, we talk about also the sense of it's either we escape into a sense of desperate hope where we want something to be reassured or secured for us or we escape into a sense of desolate hopelessness where we say okay now everything is done and there's nothing that can be done if there's no there's no meaning there's no point there's no nothing um, there's also misanthropy which is the hatred of humanity where there's the banalization of cruelty so that there's these two ditches one of hope one of hopelessness and we talk about the tightrope right that we need to learn to walk between these two ditches which is a tightrope where you need to balance relational rigor and rational rigor but rationality is much more expensive than just western rationality there there are ways of maybe you can call it intellectual rigor, and learn to balance and walk with humility, which is like understanding that we are not exceptional. We're just a point of like what matters matters beyond 
our embodied temporalities. Uh, we need to, to walk with honesty. Honesty means like being open to seeing all the, the layers of complexity of what's around us without turning our back or running away or escaping into a fantasy. Then, then there's also the need for uh, hyper self-reflexivity, which is the idea of understanding where we're coming from, where we're going, what mistakes have been made, what new mistakes could be made in the future. And then there's humor. I think one of the biggest lessons is that because this issue is so heavy, that the weight of the world is heavy, humor has been used by communities of struggle as a way of finding the absurdity in what's happening and, and the hilarious in it, even in dire circumstances, as a way of relief, right? As a, a form of, of being able to breathe and breathe deeply and out again. And I think part of what happens within modernity is that this humor is also weaponized for other things that are not the kind of relief that we need to actually be able to be together and to, to open up these other possibilities, these other ways of being. Yes, and I would love for you to talk about the bus that is us approach to discovering and learning to hold space for all of our inner complexities and how that can also help us to hold space for the complexities and all the layers of existence and experience all around us. Right. Uh-huh. So the, the book is full of exercises and one of the the anchors of this exercise is this image of the bus, which is, we call it, it's the methodology basically for interrupting the Cartesian self and the projected coherence of the self and learning to listen to the different voices both around you and within you without projecting and idealizing things or, or, or vilifying things outside. So learning to sit with everything. So the image invites you or the methodology invites you to imagine a whole bus within you, a bus of, of passengers, and they don't have to be necessarily people. <laughs> and we also say to people, like, if the bus doesn't work for you, imagine something else. But it has to have the, the diversity and variety of different things speaking to each other. Like it could be an orchestra with lots of instruments, could be a campfire, could be a boat. It doesn't matter. The image itself is not the point. The point is that this container uh, for you to be able to sit with your own paradoxes, contradictions, and to be able to process this in a different way. So modernity gives us a language to talk about the self that is geared towards a unified self. So you have to repress other parts of yourself to show coherence, which then is perceived as maturity, basically which is the modernity's idea of maturity. But in this process of repressing things within, things that you shouldn't think about or shouldn't feel or things that you don't like about your history, for example, or that you feel ashamed of or traumas that you have that you don't have the means to process. In this process of repression, there's a lot of energy that goes in there. Number one, it's, it takes a lot of effort and a lot of time. And it puts you also in a, in a situation where, where these things are triggered. You, you lose control of the bus, basically. Then you have one of the passengers get into the driver's seat and, and running with the bus somewhere, sometimes to run over other people. Um, so once you accept the invitation to sit with the passengers on your bus, and you see that at the basic level, um, 
for your life up to this point. There will be your parents as passengers, the children you were before as passengers in important moments of your life. There will be other significant others that are not necessarily human on this bus. And there are people at the front of the bus that you know very well, people in the middle of the bus that speak sometimes. <laughs> and there are people at the back who you actually don't know and who could be sabotaging a lot of things that you're trying to do. So the invitation is to dig deeper and invite the passengers to show themselves, but in a contained way so that you become, you don't, I cannot say that you become your own psychotherapist because I think this would be stretching it too much, but you become present and you have a number of licensed drivers, the trusted drivers, right, that you can call on when you need. And you know that there are some rogue passengers, you have to pay more attention and uh, maybe prevent them from taking the driving seat. The other thing that the bus allows us to do, I think, is in a group context, it allows people to talk about their own complexities without losing face and bringing things to the fore um, in a very different way. So you ha would have somebody, for example, in a discussion saying, there are three passengers in my my bus discussing right now and one is saying this the other is saying that the other is saying something else and then we can see you with more complexity when you do that the other thing you can say is that oh my okay right now my bus is going up a hill or down a hill it's, it's just going around in a roundabout or it's very stuffy in the bus it's going through a storm there's something burning so we have a lot of things in this methodology that works with analogies metaphors and figurations that can help us interrupt the language of modernity, the, the unified language of modernity, and, and create a crack or a breach of those languages so that we can bring more complexity to the table, so that we can articulate the paradoxes and contradictions that, if repressed, take so much of the time away from the real discussions, right? And the basic stuff about the bus is that if you do not have a uh, capacity to sit with your own complexity, there is definitely, I can guarantee that there's no capacity to sit with the complexity outside around you. And what happens at that point is that whatever it is that you are repressing is going to show up in a different way, right? Uh, in, re in relationship to other people, you're going to project it out in different ways. Sometimes they have no consequence, but sometimes they can be very violent. And the last thing I would like to say about the buzz is that once you have it as a practice, you can extrapolate to say that, for example, the bus can have a second deck where it's not just your life, but you have you carry your ancestors. <laughs> past and future ancestors on your bus as well. There's another deck where you could carry the whole of the non-human realm also with you. There might be another deck where there is like whoever is around you <laughs> on the bus uh, and they might not be tied to form or to time, right? So there are different ways that the, the methodology can be expanded to encompass different aspects of existence that are very difficult to bring to the table in discussions that follow modern rationality. But it does require some practice and collective practice as well to get to those expansions, right? To, to be talking about existence beyond um, our embodied temporalities, the bodies that we inhabit right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I love that imagery of the bus that is us. Um, 
Indigenous cultures use initiation and rites of passage to help us grow from from different stages, from adolescence into maturity and adulthood. We lack that in this culture. Yeah, uh, yes, the the pathways, right, um, of life in within the house of modernity is like you are born. As a kid, you go to school so that you can become a productive member of society. Once you graduate, you're an adult, or once you're earning money, you're an adult. And then uh, in retirement, you get the accolades, you leave a legacy, you have had your achievement recognized by the retirement. It's a very impoverished <laughs> uh, life pathway in comparison to other other stories. In the book, there is the story of the Four Mountains, which now is actually a research project of Kesha Henneke, who is an indigenous scholar. He's collecting the stories of different life pathways, co-constructing it actually with different elders. Because sometimes in terms of indigenous stories, there are stories that should not be shared. There are stories that can only be shared in certain circumstances. And there are stories that need to be out there. And this story in the book was one of those that where the elder who told the story, John Cryer, said this this needs to travel. This is a story that helps. And so when I travel to other communities, I share the stories with other indigenous communities. They added to the stories and then I brought them the story back to 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 Canada and he loved the iteration that had returned. So th this is another example of leaving stories. But not all stories, um, indigenous stories should be treated like that. We need the authorization, we need consent for that to happen. So I will I will tell a, a very short version of John Cryer's original story, because I think this is a very good example of a different pathway that contrasts with what we have and, and shows what we're missing out on basically in terms of expanding, right? The possibilities of the imagination in terms of our our lived realities and and the story has also been very important for young people that's why i think like that's the proof i think that i have that when when they want to hear it and then they sit with it and, and and wrestle with it and dance with it that's where i see that that's the needed story right so that's that's a story of four mountains there's the baby mountain warrior mountain a provider mountain, a hunter mountain, and an elder mountain. And there are stories for each of these mountains about what happens in relationship to the development of humanness in each of them. And humanness is not just what's good. It's, it's about also wrestling with the shadows, with the question of pain, the question of death, um, how identity becomes important and then it needs to be released, <laughs> how um, autonomy operates in this, in this format, how we wrestle with all these issues. And it serves as a, as a compass, as a guide. And, and the basic compass is that from the moment when you were born as a baby, um, the responsibility of your community, not just the human community, but the non-human community, is to support you to become a good elder. And that is something that we are not told, <laughs> I think, within the house of modernity, because eldership, and eldership is not old age. Eldership is the taking on of responsibility, taking up of responsibility, and realizing how to act. It's not even to exercise, it's how to face it and how to, um, how to emanate it viscerally, 
rather than it being an intellectual choice or a question of will, it's how to allow it to actually manifest through you um, in these different stages and how each stage the, in the baby mountain as you are held by the hand to learn how to walk on the earth as the mother, right? Um, how that changes your being and, and, and already there, there are responsibilities. You're not here just to live your life carefree and free of responsibilities, but you're there in relation always. Then in the warrior mountain is where you wrestle to find your medicine. You go into a dark forest where the trees know who you are, but they cannot tell you directly. And then you are fighting with the shadows of the trees because you want control. You want to know. In this mountain is where modernity traps us. (laughs) We stay there and then we don't go down this mountain because the going down of the mountain is where you found your medicines, right? What you, what you have to offer to the world, you develop intimacies with that gift that is unique to you, that needs to be in the other mountain, the next mountain, the provider mountain, it needs to be cooked. It needs to be prepared and and tested in terms of how it can be both medicine and poison in different contexts, in different relations, right? And as you learn to do that in the provider mountain, as you go down the provider mountain, you you have learned to integrate your medicines with other medicines. You've, You've learned when it is actually necessary, how much is necessary of it, what it is for, what it is good for, what it is not good for, which is more important, when it's not necessary and you should actually step back. And you're okay with all of that because your worth is not dependent on what other people think of you. You have developed that intimacy with yourself, with the medicine that you carry, where your sense of worth, of self-worth is not dependent on the perception of others. And in the Elder Mountain is where you are preparing to face death and to shed this body. And, and that's where in the story, in the original story, uh, that's why elders are so important for young children. And that's where the elders are the ones holding the babies and holding the babies, the, the toddlers in the children's hands because they have both the hindsight of what happened in the other mountains and they have the patience and the time. And they are also responsible then for the rites of passage from one mountain into another to turning people and helping people who get stuck in the mountains because they have um, have learned the specific lessons about their medicines and they have learned the compass to be able to to guide themselves towards eldership, which is basically this visceral responsibility. So without stories like this, it's very difficult to convince ourselves or be moved to take the steps towards eldership, right? With integrity, with dignity, um, because also within modernity, old age, um, although there is also the story that it's in old age that you receive the accolade and, and the pension basically as a, a reward, there's also the elevation of youth and this consumption that is associated with the value of youth that makes everyone afraid of aging and then it cuts off the paths to aging well so that we don't have many conversations about actually seeing this other part of life which is after youth (laughs) in a generative way in a good way and and welcoming it as a form of release of identity and, and surrender 
to uh, something bigger than ourselves as well, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I absolutely love the story of the Four Mountains. Um, you say that modernity is fatally flawed and also that we cannot midwife something new until modernity actually collapses. Yeah, something genuinely new. I think we are assisting with the birth of many different things or sometimes birthing ourselves. But these different things will always, un unless we learned the lessons in, of modernity and modernity becomes unviable, it will always be different versions of what modernity authorizes us to birth, right, in, in the same context. And this this births are also important. I'm not saying, like, stop birthing until modernity collapses, but something genuinely new will only come out of the ashes of modernity. But in order to get there, we need to be trying these things, even though these other births of projects and initiatives and, and different attempts to create alternatives within modernity even, they are super important because they fail. And that failure is actually what creates the soil for this new thing that will be possible later. So it's not a direct correlation, but as we're learning through failure and through trying different mistakes and making different mistakes and learning from them, we're actually creating the conditions for something genuinely new and wiser to be possible, to become both viable and imaginable. But right now, we have to deal with modernity dying, basically, and, and what is possible in the cracks of modernity right now. So part of what I was trying to avoid with the book is to say, let's just accelerate the process of death of modernity. Uh, in certain contexts, that might be the best option, but in, in a lot of contexts, that also creates a lot of grief and, and pain and might not be the best idea. But hospicing means disinvesting in its continuity. And being able to deal with the disillusionments and disenchantments uh, that are painful, that are necessary in this process of death. And also understanding that as this process of death may be a very messy one, so there will be a lot of cleaning up to do without reinvesting, right? That we need to learn how to do. So how do we, can, for example, imagine a form of activism that is not about like exceptionalism or expanding entitlement or even exaltedness or like virtue signaling or saying, I'm doing it. So how can we, how can we imagine an activism about hospicing that is honest, humble, hyper self-reflexive and humorous too, because we will need that. I'm not kidding. It's going to be super hard to do. But then again, as we are busy doing that, it's important to remember that at the same time that we're hospicing, there is a birth, there is a pregnancy or several pregnancies that will also need us to learn from the hospicing process to be able to give it a chance of actually being a birth to term where the baby is not suffocated with our own projections, right? But where there's a chance that this baby is going to be wiser too. Yeah, a lot of work. Vanessa, it seems like that could be quite a difficult challenge 
for those of us in modernity to really recognize and accept that modernity is dying or that it needs to be allowed to die. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the book, there's also this other analogy or image that we use is the proverb that we have in Brazil about floods. And the idea is that if the waters are rising, if the waters are only at your ankle or at your knees, the only thing you can do is walk. The possibility for you to swim, to learn to use your body in a different way, only happens when the water is actually at your hip level. You will only be able to swim when the water reaches your bum, basically, right? So it's the same here. The waters are rising for all of us, but some people are noticing it. And what they want is just a stool so that they become a little bit higher and just deny that there's any problem. Others are going to want to escape. They will try to run. Others are going to want to hold on to the refrigerator because it's new and I don't want to lose it, as has happened before in the case of floods. But the idea that we will be able to find like this other way will only be manifesting fully when we actually need to use it. And in that sense, like the waters rise for different people in different ways. And doesn't have to be something happening outside of you. Like in my family, for example, the waters rising is associated with mental health crisis for young people in the family, where young people came and said, look, I don't want to stick around because, and these were the words that were used, like being alive today as a young person, a 15-year-old, is like watching a train wreck in slow motion. And we don't want to stick around to see what is going to happen next. And this is messed up because at the same time that I know that everything we are doing is coming from violent and harmful processes, I still want the Gucci bag. I still want these promises that modernity made about consumption. And I know that we're going to be, as a, as a 15-year-old, I'm going to be shortchanged, right? And then... That kind of pleasure is the only form of well-being that is offered. And I know this is not going to be available throughout my life because the world will be burning or flooded. At that point, I don't want to be around. Right? I, I want to go. So when we reached that question as a family, the water was higher than the knees and we needed to figure out what to do. And we, we then realized it was not just an isolated problem. It was an endemic thing with young people too. And by bringing people together, we tried different things, articulating this in different ways. For example, talking about the fact that this young person, for example, that the pain that this person was feeling as they watched the train wreck, which the young person also referred to as a phantom limb pain, was actually the pain of the person being sensitive to the metabolic pain that the planet is feeling, right? The metabolic hurt. So if we articulate that, does it become easier to hold that pain or do we need something else? And we, we, we ended up going through these steps And at that point, also, indigenous practices became extremely useful in this sense. And I'm absolutely grateful for having these young people who are no longer that young in my life because we found other ways of being well that are manifested through a different neurobiological state. So here I'm talking about communities that, in our own family too, that use plant-assisted forms of entheogenic engagement to clear or to declutter the unconscious. And 
disinvest in these projections of pleasure, but by giving another sense of well-being that is much more grounded in serotonin than it is in dopamine or oxytocin, adrenaline, and endorphins. So they actually, we actually had access to another way of feeling well. And these young people then could know that there are other possibilities. That, that's the only thing that there's this possibility is that our bodies are capable of different things. And there are other ways of feeling well than just the ways that are promised by modernity. And these ways are going to be extremely important now as we face the collapse of the house. So you're talking about experiencing a broader perspective that allows us to not feel the kind of fear of dying or feeling the need, like that compulsive need to run away from pain and discomfort. Mm-hmm. Yes. And the, <laughs> and the training that goes with that, right? We talk about having the stomach and the stamina to develop it. But once you have the stomach and the stamina, you can establish a different relationship with pain, a different relationship with the temporality of your body, a different relationship with time. In that building of a different relationship, which involves perception, for sure, there is that part, but it's not only perception. There's something else that the body does that could be called actually perception, but it's perception in a different sense. It's about, again, tapping the exiled capacities is opening up the 99 senses of the body that it's the infinite capacities of our systems that have been deactivated to sense in a different way. But the problem is that that needs to be accompanied by a compass. So, for example, when I see people going to Peru, to some of the communities we work with, in search for an experience with ayahuasca, for example, right? Uh, And they want that to force their systems into um, a cleansing process that then will bring healing or creativity or whatever. If you do that through the same compass of consumption, you will get the result that is limited by that compass. But if you have a compass that like the for the indigenous peoples that have this tradition for a long time and that have kept the sense of responsibility if this compass is about collective responsibility the experience is very different it's not the same experience so there's a part of it that is about perception and intellect and imagination that needs to be like first we need to realize that it's restricted it's not unlimited and that we've been shortchanged in this process and sit with that for a while and see the harm that it has caused and then start to see if there's an invitation to expand that but this expansion might not come just through the intellect it actually might require the surrender of the focus on the intellect and the refocusing on both the nested bodies, right? So it's it's our body is not just our body. Thinking about all the bacteria in our gut, um, you can see that our body depends on other bodies. But at the same time, it's it's part. If you're thinking about it as a metabolic organism, the air we breathe is the air that the trees exhale. So the air is also an entity that is also part of our body. And if we change this relationship and if we see ourselves in a metabolic relationship with other things, I think that's what is going to activate the senses that have been deactivated. In the book, for example, I talk about the sense of smell and how 
by associating the function of smell with specific things, we have deactivated what, for example, dogs might be able to do with each other when they smell each other, right? Uh, for example, detecting disease, detecting fear, detecting if something is wrong, detecting what's happening in that specific moment in relationship to the cycles of the body itself. So this is a very simplistic example, banal example, I think. Imagine if not only our five senses that we have come to know better, right, have all these different layers that we don't know about anymore or that we have forgotten, but also that there are more senses that we haven't really tapped into that could be somehow reactivated in a crisis. Um, that's what I'm talking about in terms of seeing existence, human existence in a very different way, or the possibility of opening up coexistence from a very different basis. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for explaining and clarifying that so well. That's actually what I meant by perception, was that multi-layer mm -hmm. embodied sense. Mm -hmm. And you just described it so beautifully. Um, could you talk about using the image of modernity as an ancient elder facing the prospect of its own death and who is actually trying to teach us about the mistakes and failures it has made so that we can learn how to live and die differently? Yeah. So part of one of the things that I faced in the book when I started writing it was that um, as people engage with modernity and, and as we start to see the damage that it has caused, there is this, this sense of disidentification with modernity. And then there's almost a, a demonization of modernity. And it, it's natural in the first, if people are not familiar with it, that's what generally happens in the, as a first step. And you say, yikes. But if you cannot stop in the yikes, you have to keep shifting that relationship to one that um, is also a relationship that recognizes the gifts of modernity, both its attempts to protect us from disease, from scarcity, from death itself, right? And that's where, by changing this relationship and seeing it in a longer temporality and seeing its intentions not as evil intentions, but as attempts at trying to solve problems by creating other ones, but attempts nevertheless like human beings like something flawed and learning and and aging and um cute and pathetic and harmful very harmful in this case but seeing it as an elder um that has done a lot in its life um helps it's one of those generative stories that may move us to have a hospicing relationship with modernity that is not undignified, that allows us to sit with it in a very different way, allows us to exercise patience, um, to exercise integrity in listening, in paying attention, that won't allow us to have the tantrums sometimes that we may have, we may want to have uh, in terms of our perceived entitlements and will allow us to get through the storm from a very different space. Because recognizing modernity as an elder is also recognizing eldership as a compass for ourselves and not allowing ourselves to be stuck 
in the self-infantilizing pattern that modernity has become used to offering to us and, and the rewards that come with that too, right? So it's not just that it conditions us to want that, it also rewards us for doing that. But in its eldership, it won't be able to do that. Modernity as an elder will have to break its promises because the promises were unrealistic in the first place and the candy that it offers is not going to be as satisfying to us as we we accept the eldership call as they were when we were toddlers. So the lollipop won't work anymore. And instead of becoming angry and having another tantrum, we can sit and say, okay, <laughs> like time's up. The planet is saying, I can't anymore. This is enough. And you guys need to figure it out together. And we may say, okay, we are out of the playground and and into the forest again to try to um, find this compass together. I think that is where I think the story could go. <laughs> mm -hmm. So modernity's dying, in a sense, is a kind of rite of passage for humanity mm -hmm. at this point. But one thing that I would like for you to address is for people who are still holding on to modernity and are having a really difficult time accepting that we need to abandon it or disinvest from it or allow it to die or even to conceive of it dying. What, what could you offer? Hi. Um, so in the book, you will see that uh, a third of the book is trying to convince people not to read the book. And uh -huh. the part of the, the reason why it's there is that for those super attached to modernity and trying to deny that it's unsustainable, basically, and violent, um, reading this book can have the opposite effect of what we intend, which is to support people into this call to responsibility, right? So generally what I can offer is to say, okay, it's not, either not the book for you or not the book for now, uh, is to say, you need to go through what you need to go through right now. And I respect that. And <laughs> there is this flag, <laughs> the red flag, basically. And when you get to the red flag and when the waters rise for you to a point where you need a direction, maybe the book can be for you, right? It's not for now, but it may be for later. I don't know if we can push people into this space where they're ready for this. And I do believe that actually the pushing can be violent and can do more harm than good. So for those attached to modernity, a lot of my answer would be, if you're around them and if you see the waters rising and if you see them looking for stools, maybe the answer would be either patience or accompaniment, right? Being there as, a, as an elder, right? And, and, and trying to gently <laughs> draw attention to the waters that are rising. But I know that if you're really attached to your soul, any attempt of people to do that may be perceived and may even become damaging, right? So one, one example that I have of this, like at my university, 
I created this interdisciplinary course with the Faculty of Land and Food Systems, which is called Facing Human Wrongs. And actually, the content is available for free online. And people who read the book sometimes, if they want to continue the journey, that's where we we send people to, because it's a, a different way to to engage with the same materials, but through art and walks and, and other things. But um, we had to have a conversation at the university about the course, because we said the course is going to tell students that we're not going to coddle them. You're going to open up cans of worms and try to take the worms back to the earth. Um, but some worms maybe come unruly. <laughs> and we know that we are going through a pandemic and all the other crises. And in, this course was in the summer where we had the heat waves and the wildfires here in BC. So some people at the university said, are you sure you want to do this? People are overwhelmed already and they can't take anymore. And what we said was this, for people who are overwhelmed and they can't take anymore, it's true, the course is not a good idea. But a lot of people, too, are overwhelmed because we are not talking about this thing, because we are not giving people, like supporting people to develop the capacity to hold all this complexity and all this crisis from a different space, right? So we have to find a way to get the people who are ready for or who need this into the course and the people who would be overwhelmed by it not to take the course, basically, because it could lead to more depression, more anxiety, more self-harm, right? So what we did was to create the first unit of the course is a test unit where we put people through like lots of exercises that create some discomfort. And then there's a questionnaire at the end that says, is this course for you? Is this what you're looking for and, and going to go through for the next six weeks? And it was incredible what it did just asking this question and giving them a sample and saying, this is the kind of destabilization that is necessary for you to be able to develop capacity to hold uncertainty and volatility and complexity and ambiguity. Are you, is it the right time in your life to do this? Is it what you need in, in devolving to the people? So what we learned is that there needs to be an invitation and there needs to be the possibility for the people to refuse the invitation for this to work. So, yeah, I think back to your other question about it, too. Um, what we can do is issue an invitation and to say, and, the, and for an invitation to be a real invitation, people need to be able to say it's not the time. Otherwise, you can cause harm as well with this kind of learning, right, and unlearning. It can't be imposed on people. It has to have this anchor in relationship, in, a, in an invitation. Another thing that we did with this course that was really interesting, so we asked students to write learning journals about what they were going through using the methodology of the bus. But one thing that we asked them to do at the end of their journals was to tell us if they needed, number one, no feedback, Number two, uh, sugar-coated feedback. <laughs> Number three, honest feedback or brutally honest feedback. And this was also as an exercise for people to think really where they're at in terms of their fragility and, and where they're at with being able to sit with their own bus, right? And receiving feedback from um, an outside person. 
be it their peers or or the instructor of the course. So in experimenting with this different nuanced invitations to to give people choice, and this choice happens without judgment. That's one of the things that we said from the beginning. We're not there to judge anybody. We know that this is super complicated. It's complex, paradoxical, contradictory, and painful. So the idea of, of creating a space for this and offering support if they're looking for candy, that's not what we're offering. We're offering broccoli seeds and helping people plant the seeds and see if anything grows. If nothing grows, it's still okay. Failure is a good thing, actually, to learn from. And we're committed to walking together with that without any judgment, and but with honesty, right? So when we ask about, are you ready to receive uh, brutally honest feedback? And if somebody says, not now. And as I understand, <laughs> like what? of course, and I respect that, that that, that is the moment. So it, it helps people develop a better sense of where they're at that moment and where's the bus at and what level of support is needed. And I, we need to do that for each other all the time, probably. <laughs> we need to learn to do that for each other and, and to request consent. We, we need to develop a language of consent because the kind of intervention that the book invites or that this course invites is one that goes to the core of the being and you can't push yourself in there right it has to be a relationship and it needs to be a relationship based on trust respect reciprocity consent and accountability mm -hmm. and it might be worth distinguishing between what you refer to as divesting versus disinvesting in modernity and what you refer to as the eye of the storm. Mm -hmm. So we talk about disinvestment as opposed to divestment as, okay, I'll, I'll talk about divestment first. Divestment is you take away your, your investments quickly and you turn your back and you walk away. So divestment basically is turn your back, walk away from modernity. In that sense, it would be the abandonment of modernity. And then you try something else. The problem is that modernity is within you. And then you, when you try something else, it will be there as well. But this investment is different. It's not investing in the continuity. So it's recognizing it's out there around you and within you. And then investing in paying attention to how it manifests, and how it can be troubled or disrupted or interrupted. And this is a very slow process. It's not a bravado one, like now I'm decolonized and outside of modernity. Nope. It's like it's going to be impossible <laughs> to decolonize or to completely get out of this. Not sure if anything is going to happen even in the next generations. But what I'll do is try and in very small ways as well as big ways when when the time requires right but um it's not an exercise in exaltation it's the fine grain and the the constant wrestling and the hard work the everyday ordinary work of of thinking about those things and realizing when you are cheating <laughs> and realizing when you're deceiving yourself in in what you're doing and not taking that as a form of self bashing or devaluation is saying that's 
the human condition, but not taking that as indulgence as well as a license to indulgence. It's saying, okay, so where do I think I'm at? Where am I actually at? What's the gap and how to reduce the gap so that I can walk with integrity in this process of both witnessing and showing up in the world differently for myself, for others, for those who are not even here yet, and those who have come before too, in a different way, in a very different way. Mm -hmm. And you stress, as you said, since our lives are essentially underwritten and underpinned by modernity through and through, that our attempts to undertake this work will inevitably fail. However, you say that it's how we fail that's really important. Yes, in how we relate to that failure. In our collective, research collective, we talk about failure as good data and the responsibility that that good data (laughs) entails, but also the interruption of sensing or relating to failure as a reflection of either worthlessness or somehow it's this negative relationship. It's the fear of failure, the attempt to disguise failure as something else so that you're not seen as the failure, right? So it required a lot of work in the beginning, I think, for us as well to develop this different relationship and and to understand that it is precisely the failures that are going to help us have the sensibility and the understanding as well of what the most responsible next step is. Without this positive attention to failure, we will keep doing things, expecting different results that are showing us something else that we then refuse to see. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So for those of us who choose to continue on this path of of what you call gesturing towards decolonial futures. Could you talk about the hyper self-reflexivity questions that you present in the book? Sure. Um, So in the book, and it's also on the website of the Gesturing Towards the Colonial Futures Collective, we have an assemblage of questions, a cluster of questions that we use with each other, basically. Whenever we're engaged in a project or trying a practice, engage in an experiment, basically, just to check <laughs> who this is really about and to check who's in the driving seat of the bus and where is the ego playing in that or not. But there are questions about who's paying the price of our experiments, too, who is bearing the cost of the experiment, whether we are attentive to all the layers of accountability that we have for the resources we use or how we are presenting ourselves, who would find what we're doing indulgent in a, in a legitimate way, <laughs> who would critique it um, from a position of something that we haven't really seen and how to recalibrate our relationship with that so that we can actually hear that one of the questions is, If somebody told you how ridiculous this sounds, (laughs) would you be able to hear it? And who would be able to tell you in a way that you could hear it? So they're all trying to dismantle the ways in which we escape responsibility and trying to call you to a relationship with these responsibilities in a humorous way, right? Bringing you back to 
to the sense that, yes, you, you won't be able to escape this. You will have to go through it. You will make mistakes. You will fail. And it's going to be all right because the relationships you have around you are not based on you being successful. They're based on you being human with the good, bad, the ugly, the broken, and the messed up. And those relationships built on that ground, on that basis, that allow you to grow and to be, especially at a time where the compass has been lost. We have lost the pathways and the stories that could guide us right now. It's the human condition, right? We have to have that level of generosity and compassion with each other for the real work to become even possible. So for people who want to pursue this hospicing of modernity, what would you suggest? So if people wanted to to do something about it, there are the cards. There are two decks of cards. There's the radical tenderness cards. There's the without modernity cards. That could be a way for continuity of the practice of the work. So I will talk a little bit about then the gesturing towards the Colonial Futures Collective and what we're trying to do. So this is a collective of artists and educators and students and indigenous knowledge keepers that get together to experiment with different things. But the orientation is, we, we call it the decolonization of the unconscious, which is one aspect of the work. And the other one is to create containers for difficult conversations where relationships do not fall apart. And these conversations are at the interface of questions of historical, systemic, and ongoing violence, and then questions of the unsustainability of our habits of being right now in the planet, which are grounded on consumption. So at this interface, um, we have several things that we try, uh, and generally we try for one or two years before we make them available for free on the website. So the website is a Creative Commons initiative where everything that is there is part of a commons. What we generally ask people to do, we generally have fundraisers for indigenous communities in either in the Amazon or in the northeast of Brazil, especially now with the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, we ask for people to treat the commons with the, this principle of reciprocity. And two of the things that are on the website in text form, but also in the form of deck of cards. Um, one of them is a text called Co-Sensing with Radical Tenderness, which is mainly the work of an artist called Dani D'Amelia. And it has 50 invitations in, with the cards, like you could take one invitation and keep that invitation with you for the whole day or the whole week. And then there are also invitations to create artworks with that specific invitation. There are also forest walks that where you carry things with you and you do activities during the walks and in the forest in relationship to the to the cards. There's also another deck called with slash out modernity, which means with modernity and without modernity. And this deck of cards has questions and there are different suites of questions some related to modernity itself, some related to how we relate to modernity, some related to how modernity has restricted our ways of seeing, sensing, desiring, relating, hoping, uh, imagining. And there are some suggestions on the website about how to use the cards. There are also other exercises. There are poems there. We call them pedagogical poems because they're 
generally trying to move. It, they're not descriptions of things, but they're trying to move from like normalized states that are problematic and invite you to move into another state where you can see what's problematic and um, not invest anymore <laughs> in the problematics of it, in what is problematic. There's an exercise that is also in the book called Education 2048 that invites people to imagine uh, to place themselves in 2048 and look back and see what could have happened in terms of environmental and social conflicts and catastrophic chains of events that happened as a result of the decisions we have made either in the past or are making right now, and then invites you to sit with the emotions and thoughts that come out of naming the catastrophic chain <laughs> that may come as a result of human arrogance and like, yeah, incapacity to learn from mistakes, basically, right? So all of that is in the GTDF website. The website is a workspace. It's, it's not a, a project that is necessarily even super accessible to the public. It's That's where we put our experiments. It's a, where we put the reports of our experiments and the bus is there as well. So a lot of the tools that are presented in the book are on the website as well, um, copy left or Creative Commons. But the book brings it all together in a narrative that is easier to navigate, I think. But I would be curious too, like what what was it like to read the book for you? And like some people would generally come to me and say there were parts of it that they really wanted to throw the book at the wall or or leave the book. I'm really curious and would be very grateful if you also shared your experience with the book. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, I I actually loved the book. I found this book very easy to sit with. Mm-hmm. For many years, I've been looking at things from, from this kind of perspective for many different reasons and different experiences that I've mm-hmm. had throughout my life, including from earlier childhood. But Very recently, in the last few months, I read a book titled Weird Against Modernity, and Weird is spelt W-Y-R-D. And Mm -hmm. this this was a prose and poetic um, critique and exploration of modernity from the northern European, quasi-possibly indigenous perspective. Uh Uh-huh. And that book was kind of brutal in the way it presented things. And many people I've heard have have literally taken the book and thrown it against the wall or just, you know, reacted against the book because it was way too threatening for them. Uh-huh. And, and while I was reading it, I also felt some of that kind of brutal threat, so to speak. But I have been looking at the world around me and what's been going on with my eyes open. And I was in agreement with with everything he was saying. He was just putting it in terms that I had never heard put Uh so starkly, but it was also very poetic and full of stories. And in a way, it made your book seem like a picnic. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's good. I, I will read it. So yeah, tell me more. How do you compare the two? Your book is, I would say, is much more practical 
and more more addressing accountability and the approach that we could take in a socially quote unquote constructive approach towards this, even mm-hmm. though we're actually talking about deconstruction and and also um, you know acknowledging that we're not likely to succeed in this venture. Mm-hmm. Um, in that, both of these books share that. The author Ramon Elani he starkly says technology is not going to solve our problems that those of us entrenched in modernity have this like religious belief in technology that that it's going to solve all our problems it's going to be the pie in the sky that's going to save us without acknowledging that it's technology that has gotten us into all of these messes and is continuing to create problems at a rate faster than we can even acknowledge them let alone solve uh-huh. them uh-huh. That is so, fascinating. I will definitely read it. But I love this book. I I love the language you presented. Wonderful language and and metaphorical language and the stories that you you told in the book. I absolutely loved. And I think this is a conversation that needs to be had on many levels everywhere. And it's really at the very very beginning mm-hmm. of beginning to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I'm curious too. So, do you think that number one? Do you think the um, the beginning of the book and the all the warnings? Uh, how did it work for you? And then, with the chapters, did you read them uh, linearly, or did you choose the chapters in a different way? I followed linearly. I chose to follow your lead, your direction, and I trusted in the journey that you took us on. And I I totally understood and really appreciated the way you warned the reader to get out now if, if this is too threatening, because I know that probably at least 95% of the people living in modernity are not ready mm-hmm. to sit with their own shit that mm-hmm. this will expose mm-hmm. if they read it. And then there is the question, right? So what if they if they they are thrown into it and there's nobody around too? I I I worried about that. Like if if you do not take the warning seriously and then you end up in a place without anybody and then you drown in in the shit that gets exposed. That was what I was trying to say in the, when you asked me as well. How do how do you what what would be your response to that? Like if what do you do with people who are not ready? I don't know. That that seems to be the big question of the day because we're seeing a lot of people reacting violently against any presentation of this kind of an argument. I mean, we're seeing it we're seeing it all over the world, but mm-hmm. because I'm in this country, we're seeing it in spades with people on this new iteration of the reactionary right who who are violently reacting against any any notion that that what we've been doing is wrong or that mm-hmm. we need to account for for the damage that we've done mm-hmm. they're utterly rejecting that and doing so in a violent and what i would say is a completely insane way and yet at the same time um i can i can understand that response you know growing up within modernity we've seen this kind of immature response to the world around us and to the consequences of our actions and the refusal to take responsibility for 
for our behavior and our actions and the refusal to acknowledge reality as it is mm-hmm. and you know refusal to acknowledge that we're all going to die and that death is an integral part of life and that and that we all cause harm even mm-hmm. even those of us who are doing the best we can mm-hmm. to take responsibility and be accountable mm-hmm. there's no way to not cause harm in the world and yet there are people who are steadfastly refusing to acknowledge that anything they do is wrong or can cause harm or or to dehumanize those who who they perhaps are causing harm to so that they don't have to feel like they have to experience any of the shit aspect mm-hmm. yeah they feel justified to cause harm in the dehumanization is the legitimation you need to rationalize why that harm is is necessary basically right same with refugees and yeah indigenous people here too indigenous people in brazil um yeah we're seeing it all around yeah i'm i'm feeling like i'm i need to interview you basically <laughs> <laughs> well yeah i would love to con- to continue this conversation at some point i think that that could that could be a great um great idea and maybe even uh since you introduced me to to ramon elani um even a three-way conversation since you've read both books i'm going to read it too uh-huh i i would love to do that with you or anything any anything that you would like to do around this because i think this conversation needs to continue yes. in any way possible yes i agree i i really enjoyed talking to you and i, I think that more will come Wonderful. Yeah, I I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and I love the book and I hope that people have the courage and fortitude to to read it. To go past the first chapter. <laughs> <where> <laughs> the warnings are. Thank you for the feedback on the book too. In in many ways I once finished I had to um release it and so I had even a ceremony where I said, "Okay, you're out in the world." and uh you will do the work you're going to do and um people are going to interpret it the way they they must at the time but today like i seeing if i would imagine uh, an audience that would trust me to guide and be receptive i think um you would be one of them like <laughs> it it would be a, a an imagined reader so Thank you. Thank you for for giving giving that back. It's really nice to hear that because when I hear like people threw it at the wall, I say, "Okay, it's absolutely fine. It's the stories and and the dances that that need to happen." Um but it's also nice to hear that people liked it. <laughs> Thank you. Uh-huh. And I I totally appreciated the the humility and uncertainty, the trepidation that you had around presenting this book. Thank you. It it's hmm how can I say this? It's um if you see the size of the request or the, <laughs> what the invitation entails, you know that it's it's not easy. It's not going to be easy for humanity. It's not going to be easy for any of us. So I I don't think there's any other way to even start this work. Yeah, we will need to get to the ground and and realize that or we will end up killing each other. Protecting whatever fake states of well-being 
we have imagined and projected for ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the way I, I sense right now is that so many people are going to have to find a way to escape the overwhelming spell of modernity mm -hmm. in order to gain a broad enough embodied perspective to embrace the complexity of, of this situation where and also to be able to just sit in the midst of this huge pile of shit, which mm -hmm. is not just shit, shit, is also this beautiful potentiality for fertility. Yeah, but just to see that is already a huge turn from what we've been conditioned and rewarded to do. Exactly. And also, you know, the initial initiation is just the first step. Then you mm -hmm. have to then you have to actually walk the path of a responsible adult. <laughs> Which doesn't sound like fun. And one of the things we've been, been talking about was that how actually liberating it is. It can be, and I'm not saying we're doing it either, but there is something about eldership and maturity and sobriety <laughs> and discernment and accountability that is unburdening, not burdening. But yeah. it's counter to what we understand. There's something about the invitation to surrender unaccountable autonomy, right? Sounds terrible. But in the end, the irresponsibility of the unaccountable autonomy is weighing so much, I think, on all of us that it's that surrendering the choice of that irresponsibility, the possibility to be irresponsible, surrendering that is frightening because it is a, a surrender of choice, right? But it's also unburdening. Like lack of choice, we tend to think as constraining, but in some way, the lack of bad choices is actually quite liberating. Mm -hmm. And the deep acknowledgement that we're all going to fail and we're all going to die no matter what we do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. There's such profound wisdom in that, but it's a kind of wisdom that we have to, we have to earn and it takes our entire life to learn that. That's the eldership, right? That's that's the definition of it. It's encountering the surrender of the body uh, from a very different space, right? in in a, in a peaceful way, and in a way that doesn't leave legacies or even footprints, but leaves a compass for something genuinely new to arrive. Mm -hmm. And welcoming that possibility too, that invitation. Hmm. Well, again, this has been fabulous. I look forward to uh, future conversations with you. Me too. I will actually send you, there's a cartography we're working on at the moment with the collective and ask for feedback. So uh, with your permission, I would like to send it to you. <laughs> um, it is about box head. So we are trying to expand that to think about the pathway that would be necessary for <laughs> box head to welcome the compass. And we would love to receive your feedback. I would be happy to do that. And since you brought up Boxhead, why don't you uh, talk a bit about them? Okay, I can. Um, mm. <laughs> so in the book, there is a character that is described there that is called Boxhead, which is basically a box head with a very small body. And there are 
words in the frame of the box. In, I'm not going to talk too much about the words, but the, the words uh, represent how the grammar of reasoning of modernity operates. And in the version of the book, there are seven, I think, seven patterns, including logocentric reasoning, which is this idea of wording the world and indexing reality into language. There's um, Cartesian thinking that creates the binary between the mind and the body and other binaries in that it's self-transparent and that it's this unified self. There is also teleological, which is the way of thinking where you have to see the destiny of something in order to be able to plan for that destiny rather than stay with the uncertainty of the emergence of the process. So there are seven of them there. Uh, but what's important to say about Boxhead is that the way it's described in the book, it can be seen in two ways. It can be seen as an existing box, and then we can think about like, how love can be felt and embodied and perceived within the box and outside of the box, which is an interesting exercise and how other things about life could be seen from inside the box or outside the box. But there's also the idea that um, the desire for an outside of the box actually is a desire that comes from within the box. And then what happens is that the box just gets expanded by us thinking that we're outside of the box when we're actually reproducing the box. And then there's something about the little um, body. The little body is drawn as a line. It's an unfinished line. So if we see the box rather than a, a box that actually exists, if we see it as a drawing of a box, we can see that that line that draws the box is drawing the same box over and over rather than the box just existing out of nowhere. So what the picture invites us to do is to think about the aesthetic, the erotic, the ludic, the other than human, the hilarious, the sacred, as forces that can interrupt the drawing of the box. I'm saying can because they many times don't. They are actually engulfed by the box, they are put into the box. And that happens like, for example, with the erotic, right? So we, it has the potential to interrupt that box, but generally because of the ways that modernity operates and things are rewarded, we end up commodifying and plasticizing the erotic and putting it within the box, creating a projection for what it should feel and look like. And rather than the liberating force that takes you outside of the temporality of your body, it becomes something that you want a guarantee of pleasure that you will feel as a result of using or instrumentalizing your body in a certain way, right? So Boxhead is the creation of the subjects of modernity. And even if, as we try to challenge some of the frames of the box, we have to use the other frames to be able to even challenge the frames that we're trying to, to challenge. So it's, it's extremely hard to interrupt that if you want to remain intelligible within modernity. So it's the grammar you have to use to remain intelligible within modernity. And it solidifies or consolidates a way of being where being is reduced to knowing. It's reduced to what fits the box. And that's very, very restrictive, I think. So part of the invitation is to sit with all the box heads on our bus and to sit at the limit of intelligibility too, at the limits, in a sense, to use rationality, to sit at the limits of rationality, of Western rationality, and to see both its gifts and the ways that it has restricted 
our possibilities for being. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that reminds me how this whole story of modernity was initially just made up. It was just mm -hmm. another story that was constructed and then it gradually became more and more institutionalized. And now most of humanity, I would say, is completely under the spell of it and completely ignorant that it's just a story. And like mm -hmm. any story, it can it can be changed. You know, we can create another story. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And in that way, you know, some stories become like these fixed rules of reality. And yet, really, they're just stories, and we can change. We can change them anytime we have the the ability to recognize that. Yeah, and and if we see it as an entity too, seeing how because it has become so omnipresent, it has interacted with other stories, right, and also colonized <laughs> these other stories. But how? The stories that are not colonized by it at this point are not stories that maybe we can we can evoke and mobilize in ways that they will be able to move anything because they have been probably banished from the spaces. So it's like it's working in the cracks of the stories and bringing these metaphors and analogies and images in that we will bypass defenses of the ego that wants to protect the attachment with modernity, right? That I think we have a chance, but it's it's in the cracks. Because the, the problem is that if we, like any of us says, okay, we're, let's create another story right now, chances are <laughs> that modernity will just change its clothes <laughs> and become this other story too. So what you said about understanding, like knowing modernity intimately from this perspective where you are not subsumed by it, but knowing it intimately gives us the best chance that we could have of working in its cracks. Yeah, and I think in order to really be able to honestly do that, we can't just rail against modernity as yeah. this evil entity. We we really have to respect it and honor what it is and what it can teach us yeah. in a in a way that that does give it dignity and integrity. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that could be a really difficult thing for some of us. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. Also because of that pattern that we talked about of the seesaw, right? Idealization, vilification, romanticization, pathologization. Unless we find a way to balance the seesaw in everything, like in ourselves and, and in the way we relate to the world, we won't be able to sit with everything. We will want either the fantasy of the good or we will reject it as the fantasy of the only bad. We want either the only good or the only bad. And this doesn't exist as everything is entangled and broken at this point and diseased. And unless we can actually acknowledge that first and then learn to be intimate with what it's done and the mechanisms of doing it and the consequences of its doing, like how can we intervene? We don't have enough information to intervene responsibly unless we can see the reality of it, right? We generally, within modernity, we intervene in the world to change it through fantasies of what mm -hmm. should be. Yep. 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 
This has been wonderful. Let's let's continue this. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for reaching out, and I would love to continue. Okay. And be well. You too. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Vanessa Machado de Oliveira is the professor at the University of British Columbia. She holds a Canada Research Chair in Race, Inequalities, and Global Change, and is a founding member of the Gesturing Towards Decolonial Futures Collective. She currently is directing research projects and learning initiatives in collaboration with Indigenous communities in Canada and Latin America related to global healing and well-being in these times of unprecedented challenges. And she's the author of Hospicing Modernity, Facing Humanity's Wrongs and the Implications for Social Activism. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com slash WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. <laughs>